You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. When Bad Cinderella closed in June of this year, it signified the first time in 43 years that Broadway was without an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. And it became the second shortest run ever for one of his musicals on Broadway. Bad Cinderella also represented the second collaboration between Lloyd Webber and lyricist David Zippel. Their first show together was The Woman in White, which, as Lloyd Webber explains, began in London in 2004 and then opened at the Marquee Theatre the following year. Well, this is the main song from The Woman in White, the title song. A show that uh, started its life like so many of mine in Gale, with an extraordinary cast with Anne Hathaway playing Laura, the very beautiful girl. The original story was by Wilkie Collins, a notable and successful novelist and playwright from the 19th century. And it was another British playwright, Charlotte Jones, who was brought in to adapt Collins' novel and write the musical's book, which tells the story of Walter Hartwright, a young drawing teacher who encounters a mysterious woman in white, whom he later learns is the victim of a fraudulent scheme. Walter, along with his love interest, Laura Fairley, and her half-sister, Marion, embark on a dangerous journey to unravel the truth behind the woman's identity, as well as the plot against Laura's inheritance. Now, the London production starred Michael Crawford in his first role on the West End since Phantom. I like acting. I love acting. Phantom, you know, you disappear beneath the makeup. But it was just such a joyous role to, to have offered you. And when I read the book, it just has layer after layer. So the rest of the company, young company, um, and led by Maria Friedman, they're such great singers. Maria Friedman is the award-winning actress who would also go on to join the Broadway production. Both Crawford and Friedman would end up leaving the show at various points due to health issues. In fact, casting changes were just as frequent as the changes made to the script and score. At one point, the entire London cast finished the show on a Sunday night, and just two days later, an almost completely new cast began version 2.0 of The Woman in White. And months later, it was a second variation of 2.0, that eventually made its way to Broadway. Now, by the time Woman in White came to New York, it had been 10 years since the success of Sunset Boulevard. And it would be another 10 until School of Rock. So during this interim, which was between 1997 and 2015, Lloyd Webber didn't have an original musical or revival last more than nine months on Broadway including the Evita revival I previously did an episode on. So I guess you could say he was in a bit of a dry spell. Nonetheless, the woman in white could have and probably should have done better. And in this episode, we'll explore some of the reasons it didn't and how a white rat ended up stealing the show. Welcome to Closing Night, a theater history podcast about famous and forgotten shows that close too soon. I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I'll be your guide in this first season as we go through the ups and downs of one of Broadway's youngest venues, the Marquee Theater. These episodes will give a behind-the-scenes look at some of the shows that have come and gone from here, 
and what led up to their closing night. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. The genesis of the Woman in White musical can be traced back to a candid TV interview Lloyd Webber gave in 2002. During this interview, the renowned composer made an unexpected revelation. He was not currently engaged in any new creative projects and actively sought fresh ideas from the viewers. Well, this disclosure triggered a deluge of suggestions and concepts from eager fans. But among the numerous proposals, one particular idea captured Lloyd Webber's attention, an adaptation of a novel from 1860 called The Woman in White. This suggestion sparked his interest and creative enthusiasm so much so that he reached out to a lyricist he had known for years but had never gotten the chance to work with yet, David Zippel, who had written lyrics for musicals like City of Angels and The Goodbye Girl as well. There was a general manager who managed Andrew's shows in New York. Before, Even before we were friends, he had seen a, a reading of my work and was very enthusiastic about it. And I think it was in the early 80s, he had told Andrew that he should meet with me. Um, we met probably nine years after that, but he was already engaged with another lyricist on another project. And over the years, he would call me and uh, we would say, we must work on something together, but it never happened. And then in I think 2002, he called me about The Woman in White, which is a 700-page Wilkie Collins Victorian novel. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this scares the hell out of me <laughs> to write a through-composed musical with that much plot. But I figured since it scared me, I, I definitely had to do it. And uh, we enjoyed writing it. It was a good experience. Now, much like me and probably you, Zippel wasn't that familiar with Wilkie Collins who was a prominent British novelist and playwright in the 19th century. However, most of us, including Zippel, are very familiar with Collins's close friend and collaborator, Charles Dickens, who frequently published Collins's work in his magazines. Throughout his career, Collins used his novels to address social issues of his time, like gender roles and the legal system. One of his most notable successes and contributions to the literary world is The Woman in White, which was first published in serial form from 1859 to 1860, appearing in Charles Dickinson's magazine All the Year Round in the UK and in Harper's Weekly in the US. 
It was eventually published in book form in 1860. It was done in installments each week, and it, the final episode caused the House of Commons to have to be closed. That's our Parliament, because the whole of Parliament wanted to read the final episode. It is widely regarded as one of the earliest examples of detective fiction and mystery novels, and it features innovative storytelling techniques such as multiple narrators and suspenseful cliffhangers which greatly influenced the development of modern fiction. This mysterious tale of damsels in distress, a wicked aristocrat, lunatic asylums, family fortunes, and a sinister secret society is also notable for its strong and unconventional female characters like Marion Holcomb, a complex and multi-dimensional character who challenges the traditional gender roles of her era. She showcases the strength intelligence, and resilience of women in a society that often underestimated their abilities. Ultimately, The Woman in White was a commercial success and helped establish Wilkie Collins as one of the most popular and influential authors of the Victorian era. There have actually been many adaptations of The Woman in White, from American and European films to BBC television series. And the novel was on The Guardian's list of 100 greatest novels of all time. And so Zippo had a big task ahead of him to bring these characters to life. But he certainly wasn't alone in adapting this huge story to the stage. So I did immerse myself in his story and, and also in the book. But we had a terrific British playwright, Charlotte Jones. And she worked very hard with us and, and we adapted the story. So it's, it's freely based upon the original novel, because some of the twists and turns don't really uh, work in a contemporary world, so we reinvented the ending and, and part of the story. But And Tre Sir Trevor Nunn was our director, so all of us worked very closely together. Jones is an award-winning British playwright as well as an actress and screenwriter. And Trevor Nunn? Well... He is the infamous director of stage and screen who The Telegraph named among the most influential people in British culture. He is legendary for his Shakespeare productions and has also been the force behind such iconic shows as Les Miserables and Chess, not to mention his numerous collaborations with Lloyd Webber like Cats, Starlight Express, Aspects of Love, and Sunset Boulevard. So he was very familiar with Lloyd Webber's music and the lush storytelling that flows through much of his work. It's melodramatic, severely melodramatic, but that's really, the source material is very melodramatic and it's very um, moody. It's a really wonderful, twisty story. Granted, they did, they did change it a lot from the original book. The original book is wonderful. Everybody should read it. This is Leah Horowitz, who was a cast member in the Broadway production. They had to change it. You know, obviously, there's so much in the book that they had to simplify it and change a few things. But really, like, it has some beautiful melodies. The story really, like, moves along, um, has some real great twists, has a big twist at the end. And according to the Daily Mail, by February of 2003, the creative team of Woman in White had finished the first act. And a few months after that, in July, they presented a freely adapted workshop version of the first act and a couple of songs from the second act at the Sidmonton Festival, which is a summer arts festival that takes place in a small chapel that's part of Lloyd Webber's country estate. 
Its purpose is to introduce new works to a private audience of individuals connected with theater, television, and film. The cast included actors from theater and film, including Laura Michelle Kelly, who played Marion Holcomb, the half-sister to Laura Fairley, who was played by a young Anne Hathaway. Hathaway was still riding high off her success in The Princess Diaries and her much-praised New York stage debut in the City Center Encore's concert production of Carnival in 2002. Yet Hathaway nor any of the other actors from that workshop would stay on with the production. And so by year's end, Lloyd Webber reached out to another actor, asking him to read the Collins novel over Christmas. This actor had famously brought another one of Lloyd Webber's characters to life, the Phantom of the Opera. But Michael Crawford hadn't actually been on the West End since that award-winning performance, and maybe he needed some convincing. I had to be talked into reading a book by my <laughs> ex-wife. You, you often don't listen to the advice of your <laughs> ex-wife, do you? <laughs> anyway... She insisted that I read this book and sent it out with the point where I came on <laughs> like a child. And so I read from there on and I was just drawn into this amazing story. Crawford called up Lloyd Webber the first week in January 2004 and said, Have you cast it yet? I'd love to do this. To which he replied, For God's sake, if you're really interested. <laughs> And, of course, Crawford was, very much so in the role of Count Fosco, a villainous character who becomes attracted to Marion and plots to steal the estate from her half-sister. Crawford saw a lot of humor in Fosco's treachery and began researching to find a look for this larger-than-life character. There were whole pages and pages of characters that were Italians of this period. I spotted this fellow. He just shot out the page to me. And he had, a, he had curly hair that went out here and then came into his head just above his ears. And I'd never seen anything like this haircut. But as it was a real person, I leapt at it and said, that's who I wanted to be. In addition to his curly black triangle-shaped wig, Crawford also chose to wear a fat suit to portray the rotund Fosco. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Because there was another more specific reason why Lloyd Webber thought his phantom would be perfect for this big cameo role, as he called it. You see, in the novel, Count Fosco keeps birds and white mice as pets and pampers them as if they were his own children. And Lloyd Webber told Daily Variety that he remembered Crawford's starring role in Flowers for Algernon on the West End back in 1979 with mice in that production. But in the musicalized version of Woman in White, Fosco also sings a song to a free-roaming white rat that crawls up his leg and onto his arms, traipsing from one hand across his shoulders to the other hand. Or at least that's how it was staged once rehearsals began in July of 2004. And then she goes, she's supposed to go over to the other side. Come on, Missy. <laughs> and then when she doesn't, the audience start to laugh 
um, I'm singing You Can Get Away With Anything. And I'm, I'm doing, it's supposed to be a cadenza that, that Andrew wrote. He hasn't recognized what he wrote since, he sta- since his first visit to the theater. Because I'm going, no. Taking on the role of Marion Holcomb would be Maria Friedman, who is a three-time Olivier Award-winning actress in shows like Ragtime and Passion. Yet in an interview with Celebrity Radio, Friedman admits to still being in awe of working with a living legend like Michael Crawford. He's huge, isn't he? I, he's um, well, he's huge because he's wearing a fat suit, but I mean, his his personality is enormous, and uh, um, and his craft is extraordinary. His technique is, I mean, he's, he is like clockwork. He never misses. He never misses a joke. He never misses a moment. He's, he's really wonderful. He's very funny and very naughty off stage. So it keeps us going as well. Friedman had known Lloyd Webber, having recorded some demos here and there for him, and was a part of the film version of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat with Donny Osmond. But she had not done a stage show with Lloyd Webber until The Woman in White. He offered me this role and then he came to New York to see me in a cabaret that I was doing out there. And when he saw the cabaret, he said, I'm rewriting the role, I'm going to make it just do everything um, because I want to get all those bits of you that I saw in the cabaret. In the, and I thought, yeah, sure, he did. And it's great because i got comedy and drama and tragedy and passion. and It's just, it's an amazing roller coaster for an actor. It's great. Rounding out the leading cast for the London production was Australian Martin Cruz and Americans Angela Christian and Jill Pace, who comprised a cast of 28 performers. But the biggest member of the company was the huge projection screen at the back of the stage, which would use pictures and scrolling images to set the scene or convey motion. And the choice was made to let the projectors and the actors do most of the work when it came to staging. It relies heavily on the visual, but also it's one of the the most demanding shows on the actors that I've been in because because actually there aren't sofas and chairs. You know, the, the, the world is created by what we see behind us. So it's up to you to fill the space. So really we could do it without anything at all because it's the, it's it's us who are telling the story. It was production designer William Dudley who was responsible for the 3D animations as well as the sets and costumes. Dudley and director Trevor Nunn had previously collaborated on Tom Stoppard's expansive nine-hour trilogy, The Coast of Utopia, at London's National Theatre in 2002, which Lloyd Webber had seen. And they all decided to employ similar innovative projection methods to The Woman in White. A significant portion of the stage design involved projecting imagery onto gracefully curved screens. And it was London-based video production company Mesmer that spearheaded the realization of these projection techniques on a set that was circular with a curved wall that sat just off the stage turntable. Here's producer Sonia Friedman, director Nunn, and Lloyd Webber talking about how they came up with this innovative idea. When Andrew described what he wanted to do 
with the music, which is he wanted to move from uh, a hilltop into a house, the house, you know, into a London bath. You know, Trevor's response to that was, how do we do that? We had to do something that wasn't to do with um, physical scenery. It wasn't to do with flying cloths in or trucking trucks in. And uh, was very fascinated with the possibilities of video. So we developed this system together. I hadn't actually thought that this would be the way we necessarily do it. I mean, one of the great things about when you work with a, with a great director, uh, they always have ideas. So while Dudley may have taken on the role of designer and 3D modeler, there was a vast team of creators and technicians behind him. Now, bear with me, because in addition to Dudley, there were two assistant modelers, an animator, compositor, and editor, not to mention the CAD draftsman who meticulously created set plans and integrated them with optical plots devised by Mesmer in collaboration with two additional companies, providing software code development, physical equipment, technical support, and troubleshooting. <laughs> that is quite a team, huh? Now, I say all of that to emphasize the fact that they were engineering a specific software and playback system tailored for the woman in white. Their monumental challenge was to figure out the precise placement of the eight video projectors and the artful manipulation of images that would seamlessly follow the set's movements. It took 18 computers and 12 media servers to handle such complex designs that were being projected on a wall surface that measured 98 and a half feet wide, or 30 meters, and stood 16 and a half feet high, or five meters. Dick Straker of the Mesmer Company said, quote, some of the software was created as we went along with some customized solutions never used before. The hard part was knowing that it would all work as expected. And it did. End quote. Well, I've been in theater long enough to know that when it comes to mechanisms and technology, something will eventually happen. Now, that projection team had been working back in May of 2003 and kept on working till opening night in London on September 15, 2004. Maria Friedman and Jill Pace offer contrasting experiences of the show and its use of what was new technology at the time. We actually haven't done a show where the video packs up, thank God, because they, they, we've got backup to go to the backup to go to the backup, but we did have a rehearsal. Um, we've got contingency A, B and C so that we actually can keep going. It was dark and we were using this at the time very experimental scenery, which now everybody uses. It was all projections and they would break all the time and you just have like Windows XP up on the screen behind you from this like Edwardian tale. We were first. Such a roller coaster. And when it came to reviews, they were a bit of a roller coaster as well. I've talked about shows before having mixed reviews, but with The Woman in White, the critics were really all over the place and divided on what to make of the show. The Independent didn't mince words in saying too many of the songs emit the generic pop opera sound of Lloyd Webber land. While the Daily Mail actually thought Lloyd Webber's music was hypnotic and classical, saying it slowly unveils its melodies. The Evening Standard was rather bored with most of the music. 
but remarked that there was one catchy song, I Believe My Heart. The Daily Express called the show a soaring, lyrical, romantic drama whose every scene lends itself as if by magic to precisely the kind of music that Lloyd Webber writes best. Critics also praised the innovative set design and projections by William Dudley, with one reviewer saying it was magnificent and that the opening projection of a foggy station gave him goosebumps. Still, Others questioned if this production had gone too far in replacing traditional scenic elements with digital imagery. But then there was the musical's book, which was consistently advertised as being freely adapted from the original Wilkie Collins novel. The Mail on Sunday thought, quote, Charlotte Jones has done a neat job condensing this tale of two sisters and has transformed the novel's notorious baddie, Count Fosco, into the type of lovable rogue more familiar in operetta. However, the Evening Standard had a bone to pick with Jones's adaptation, calling it preposterous. The Telegraph felt that the good music designs and performances in the show were all being let down by Jones's revision of the story. The Guardian felt the same, because even though they liked David Zippel's lyrics, they had issues with Jones's book, and how it tried to give the story a modern twist and messed with Marion's character. However, Maria Friedman did win rave reviews for her portrayal of Marion, as did Michael Crawford for his buffoonish Fosco. Both actors would end up receiving Olivier Award nominations in February 2005 for their performances, as would Dudley for his set designs and the show itself for Best Musical. But by the point that the Olivier Award nominations had come out, Crawford was no longer with the show. So let me explain. Remember, it was Crawford's idea to use a fat suit as part of his transformation into Fosco. I refused to put the fat suit on during rehearsals because I thought, no, the company, we're, we're sort of a pretty close-knit bunch, and uh, I'd be heckled a great deal. So I, uh, I thought it would distract, and I didn't put the fat suit on until we actually got into the theater. So the character developed once that was on, and I could look in a mirror and then be able to see how I would walk. So it's, it's quite complex. The suit weighs three pounds more every time I come off the stage. We weighed it, and that's in the winter. In the summer, when we opened at the end of September, it was, uh, I was losing much more than that. Interestingly enough, Crawford gave that interview just a few weeks before he would start missing shows due to flu-like symptoms that began in late 2004, just four months after opening. 
And in his absence, his understudy Steve Vernon would take his place. By January 2005, though, it became obvious that Crawford wasn't coming back anytime soon, and Michael Ball was brought in on short notice to fill in. Now, Ball was no stranger to Lloyd Webber and his musicals, having performed in Phantom and Aspects of Love, and he went on the British talk show Richard and Judy just a couple of weeks after his first performance in The Woman in White. Well, I got the call on the Sunday saying this is something that I thought that I could be able to do and fit into the schedule because the schedule was kind of mad anyway. And I instantly said, yeah, I'll have a go. And I was in rehearsal on the Wednesday morning. I was on stage 10 days later. I'd seen the show, not with Michael Crawford. I'd seen it just after Christmas because I know Maria Friedman uh, and really enjoyed the show. And all the way through the rehearsal process, I didn't go and see the show again. I didn't want to be influenced by anything. It's that kind of those showbiz stories that, you know, you're, you're flung on at the deep end. And as you'd expect, Ball brought his own ideas and interpretation to Count Fosco. Yet he sought inspiration from a very unlikely place, the world of pornography. Since the character is lustful and nefarious, the look Ball went for was patterned after porn star Ron Jeremy. There was a fat suit to accentuate Fosco's affability, long black greasy hair that goes straight back and forms a widow's peak in the front, with a mustache that can seem at once debonair and menacing. As much fun as Ball was having in the show, there was still hope that Crawford would recover enough to return in May of 2005. But that didn't happen, and Anthony Andrews was brought in as a permanent replacement to play Fosco. It was later revealed, however, that Crawford's illness was actually related to oversweating while wearing the fat suit. As Crawford explained in 2011 to the Daily Mail, teams of doctors were called in to try and find out why he was so completely exhausted, depleted, and unable to return to work. He had brain and body scans and virtually every test known to man before eventually discovering that he was suffering from a post-viral condition called myalgic encephalopathy, which is better known as chronic fatigue syndrome. But Crawford wasn't the only cast member replaced in this production. After the break, we'll discuss The Woman in White version 2.0 and then dive into the show's New York transfer as Maria Friedman reprises her role as Marion in the Broadway production. The original timeline for The Woman in White to reach Broadway was November 2005, but in February of that year it was announced that the show would instead play a pre-Broadway tryout in Chicago from November to January, leading up to a New York opening in the spring of 2006. This new schedule gave the creatives plenty of time to incorporate a series of changes into the London production. You see, by mid-2005, The Woman in White seemed to be facing an uphill battle. The mixed reviews certainly hadn't helped, and the show was struggling to find a firm footing at the box office, with one London investor indicating it was far from recouping its investment. 
So in light of these challenges, rehearsals began for a new cast to take over the West End production. Lloyd Webber and Nunn initiated creative changes during these rehearsals as well. With the help of Zippel and Jones, the creative team streamlined the complex plot and sought to clarify the ambiguous ending. They also dialed back the show's innovative video projections, which, with their fast-paced movements, had left some audience members feeling queasy. Another cut to the show, or rather reduction, was Fosco's fat suit and prosthetics, which had been replaced with a slightly exaggerated nose and a little padding. And so on July 9th, 2005, the original London cast, with the exception of Crawford, appeared on stage for the last time in the final performance of the first version of the show. The second version opened just two days later on July 11th, with an almost completely new cast, except for some of the ensemble. With all of these changes made to the show, it was believed that they had successfully addressed the show's issues. And so the producers invited the London critics back for a second look at the musical. Charles Spencer of the Daily Telegraph wrote, At a time when musical comedy is making such a welcome comeback, this emotionally incontinent and often drearily laborious musical seems desperately old-fashioned. I tremble for its chances in New York. No matter how many creative modifications Andrew Lloyd Webber's latest musical undergoes one year after opening, it remains a troubled show. Overall, critics weren't impressed. Many maintained their initial critiques or praises, while others felt the show had grown a little stronger. But none had any new revelations or glowing remarks about this new version. And according to the New York Post, the creators and producers of the show felt disheartened. Sonia Freedom, in particular, who was the producer of the London production, as well as the sister of the original lead actress, Maria Friedman. She was dismayed by the second round of London reviews and concerned about their potential impact on the show's chances in New York. That's because it had been decided that The Woman in White would not be making its way to Chicago after all. They chose instead to reverse course and open on Broadway as originally planned in November 2005. So advance ticket sales began and ended up reaching just over $5 million. A respectable figure, but nowhere near the heights Lloyd Webber had achieved during his heyday with Phantom of the Opera and Sunset Boulevard, which opened with advances of $20 million or more. To bolster sales, producers were pinning their hopes on a clever radio ad featuring music from the show linking it to the iconic phantom and emphasizing Lloyd Webber's return to the lush, gothic romance that had been his hallmark. But while producers were selling the show, the Broadway cast began rehearsing the show in fall of 2005. The musical was now a slightly shortened and modified version of London's 2.0, with a budget of $8.5 million and a weekly running cost of more than $500,000. With the three female stars from that production, Friedman, Pace, and Christian, being brought in to reprise their roles, as was Michael Ball. But Friedman was definitely the big star in the producers' minds, as her compensation was north of $10,000 per week, plus perks like a three-bedroom apartment, a car, driver, and a nanny for her two children. The rest of the cast would be joining the musical for the first time, including Leah Horowitz, 
A swing in the show who talks about their first day with director Trevor Nunn. And the first rehearsal, he just sat us all in chairs in a circle, and he basically gave us like a history lesson, which was fascinating. He's wonderful to listen to. Like you could listen to him talk for hours about theater and he talked about the book and its relation to Wilkie Collins was a good friend, a contemporary of Charles Dickens, and talked a lot about that and historical context and just all sorts of wonderful things to kind of get us into it. And then, yeah, rehearsing with him was wonderful. Watching him work with Maria, especially because they had a great relationship, but just such a kind, smart, intuitive, like insightful man. And Simon Lee, who was the music supervisor, and he taught us all the music, was just one of my favorite people ever. Dry, hilarious, you know, like we would learn something and sing it and he would he would be like, well, that was terrible, you know, <laughs> but like so funny. And, you know, we could tell he loved us. And like, I remember we all had to work on the ensemble. We had to have like a Yorkshire accent i think it was like a northern dialect so we we did a lot of work on that um but yeah rehearsals were great now rehearsals in a studio are helpful in learning the basics of a show the music and blocking and choreography but just as in london the woman in white had a rather large component of the show that could only be learned and explored once the cast got on stage those innovative videos and projections which had undergone some modifications for the Broadway stage. So the set was basically almost like a donut. And for most of the show, the two front walls that faced the audience could open up. So for most of the show, it really looked like a semicircle that had a couple of doors built into it. And within the middle of the donut was a turntable. And then the set, I, should, I shouldn't say the set, I guess the backgrounds were projected onto it in an innovative way they the projector was not out in the house the projector was up above and it would project kind of at a sharp angle down onto the wall so you could get pretty close to the wall before your body interfered with the projector stream but you know we were taught how close we could get you know we we had to keep a certain distance from the projector but regardless of the dizzying technology behind the cast the main star and focus of this Broadway production was Maria Friedman. But she wasn't just a leading actress. She was leading offstage as well and enjoyed a deep camaraderie with the cast. She was just also just an open book and just got to know all of us and really was just the wonderful leader. You know, the feeling of a show is often so dictated by the principles and how they act. Though she had already done the role before, Friedman was leading by example and fervently preparing for her Broadway debut, even embarking on a diet just to fit into the tight corset for the show. But on Halloween, October 31st, 2005, just three days after preview performances had begun, she noticed something strange about her body when she was looking in the mirror and discovered a lump. Hours later, she underwent a mammogram and was diagnosed with stage 1 breast cancer. Producers Bob Boyette and Sonia Friedman considered delaying or even canceling performances to allow their leading lady to recuperate. But for Maria Friedman, calling off her Broadway debut was never an option because she didn't feel ill. 
she continued to perform in previews and, three days after her diagnosis, had an operation, which left her with dark, painful bruises on her chest and extremely tender ribs. She said, quote, It was like an elephant sat on me. Well, during her absence, the understudy Lisa Brescher took over the role. And a week after that, a bruised and bandaged Friedman was back singing and dancing for almost three hours in a preview performance. There was a doctor in the wings on standby, the radiologist who first discovered the cancer, and he monitored her condition throughout the show. He said, quote, I'm not an avid attendee of the theater. I usually fall asleep, but I didn't fall asleep in this one. Well, I certainly hope not. Michael Ball also told the New York Times that he was just proud to be on stage with her. With such sadness, we both live. Though it's unpardonable, I ask you to forgive. Now, the decision to go public with her disease was hers alone. Because Friedman felt that just letting it leak out would be a negative for the show as it approached opening night and those all-important reviews. She also knew that the jobs of the front-of-house staff and backstage technicians at the Marquee Theatre, as well as the cast, of course, were all riding on the success of this show. And this 45-year-old mother of two was not going to let breast cancer cancel the production. Even when she started radiation, Friedman would do six shows a week, while the understudy Brescia would do the Wednesday and Saturday matinees. But as I mentioned, Leah was also an understudy for Friedman. Each character had two understudies, and they very clearly were the A understudies and the B understudies. The A understudies always went on. The B understudies tended to go on. I mean, I was the B understudy for Marion, and I never went on. As someone who was an understudy on the Avida National Tour for Juan Perón, I know what it's like to rehearse every week and prepare for a leading role, but never go on. You understand that it's rarely personal, as there is so much that goes into making those decisions, but still, it is disappointing. Nonetheless, we understudies are professional, taking our jobs seriously and constantly stay ready for the possibility of going on. I mean, I watched her a lot because I was her understudy and I was a swing, so I could watch her from the house. And I never got tired of watching her because she was so present and so alive and she never was quite the same twice, but not in a bad way. I mean, she hit her marks. She she wasn't, you know, she wouldn't mess with anybody to like change her blocking or anything, but she was just so in the moment. It was it was just amazing to watch her every night her dramatic turns, and just everything was always so fresh. There were other smaller characters on stage that often get the biggest response from the audience, and that would be Beatrice and her understudy, Charlotte, who play the rat that Count Fosco sings to during his comedic song, You Can Get Away With Anything. Beatrice is a more common white rat, whereas Charlotte is completely hairless, making her veins pop out beneath her skin. Ball found Charlotte to be utterly disgusting and not a good performer, 
and she would elicit quite the violent reaction from the audience as well. He also dealt with mice in another scene, which grossed him out due to their incontinence. On opening night, such a mishap occurred during a key scene, prompting Ball to strategically place wet wipes around the set. And he admitted to pulling a prank on his co-star Ron Bomer, wiping mouse-related mess on Bomer's costume for a good laugh. Well, while the cast was certainly enjoying their opening night on November 17, 2005, Maria Friedman had even more to be grateful for. I wasn't really able to uh, be too sad because there was this outpouring of concern and practical care from people I didn't know, obviously all the people I did know, but from hundreds of people. I have, I have a mailbag, which is I'll, I'll be writing back for months, you know. It's nice for me to be able to say thank you to absolutely everybody. I'll be saying it for a long, long time. And I feel well. I feel one of the blessed ones. I wasn't seriously ill. And, um, and I think cancer's really kind of confirmed to me that it's kind of okay to be fallible and human. It's okay. Being on stage with her, she was doing this incredibly dramatic role that had crying, but she was able to just goof around on stage like she would turn her back to the audience and pull a face at you and make you laugh and then turn around and she'd be back in character. She was amazing like that and we just adored her. And when it came to her performance, the reviewers were enamored with her portrayal of Marion. The New York Daily News said, what gives Woman in White its dramatic power is Maria Friedman's shattering performance. Others said she sings with effortless expressiveness and provides most of the heat in the show. Newsday was particularly effusive in their review, saying, The gifted and gutsy Maria Friedman, whose recent breast cancer surgery has had her all over the news, performs with nuance and without apparent diminution as Marion. William Dudley, with his set designs and projections, also received raves from the critics. However, when it came to the music, lyrics, and book, the New York reviewers were just as divided as the London critics had been, calling the music his best score since Aspects of Love, as well as generic and syrupy. The lyrics were workmanlike as well as bland, while Jones's freely adapted book was mostly panned as diluted and convoluted. Regardless, those reviews didn't stop audiences from checking out the newest Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. On average, week after week, the Woman in White box office sales were on par with other big shows like Hairspray and Beauty and the Beast. It was even besting the other big musical to open that fall, Jersey Boys. But as performances went on, much like it did in London, the captivating set design and walls didn't always want to cooperate with the actors. There were times when things would not work. And um, there was this one scene when, when I was on for Lisa. Lisa had this track of a prostitute. She would walk with, I think, Marion and Walter in front of those closed walls. And there was a door that she would take out a key and pretend to open the door and like, walk them through the door but sometimes if something went wrong with the set the door would automatically lock 
it was like a safety feature where if something wasn't working right, it would lock to like protect the actors. So you'd get to the door and pretend to try to open it and it's not opening. So then you would kind of shrug and just walk off into the wings, you know, and then I think a couple of times they might've had to stop the show because they couldn't get the front of the donut to open. Like it got stuck. So while actors were contending with occasional challenges on stage, medical issues were affecting two of the leads off stage. Friedman continued her ongoing cancer treatment, which led to her missing shows throughout December of 2005. And then later that month, the cast was on a short two-day Christmas break, but as the cast returned to the show, Michael Ball was not among them. The producers were oddly quiet about where he was or when he'd be back, so his a understudy was put on in his place until such time as producers would have had to contractually pay him more. Then, at that point, the B understudy was put in. Well, Ball may have been absent and Friedman was missing shows, but it certainly didn't affect ticket sales, as The Woman in White had its highest weekly gross of the run between Christmas and New Year's Day, reaching almost $1 million. In fact, all of Broadway was having a banner season, grossing a then-record $825 million in New York for the 2005 calendar year. As 2006 began, a report came out from Playbill. Michael Ball, the London stage star who created the role of Count Fosco for the Broadway production of The Woman in White, has permanently left the production. A spokesperson for the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical told Playbill.com that Ball, who was last in the show January 20th, has a viral infection in his throat and will not play the show's final performances. However, I have confirmed that Ball was not in show on January 20th. And in fact, he hadn't returned to the show since Christmas. Whether that was a typo in Playbill or just a bad press release, I'm not sure. But what did happen on January 20th, though, was an announcement that Friedman would be out again on medical leave for six weeks starting February 12th, and that Judy Kuhn would take over in her absence. However, that never happened. Because just a couple of weeks after that, it was announced that The Woman in White would close on February 19th. Friedman decided to postpone her medical leave and just finish out the remaining shows. As it turned out, the London production closed a week after that, having lasted a total of 19 months on the West End, whereas the Broadway production only ran for three months. In total, The Woman in White played 109 performances in New York, yet only 31 of those featured a complete cast on stage. Lloyd Webber compared it to his big hit show by saying, quote, there have been performances when two or more leads have been absent due to illness. I'm not sure even the Phantom of the Opera could have survived the illnesses which have beset this wonderful company. But according to Bob Boyette, the lead producer, the decision to end the show boiled down to one thing, the numbers. He revealed that ticket sales took a nosedive in February, resulting in a whopping $150,000 loss. And the bleeding wasn't going to stop there. More losses were on the horizon, and to keep the show running until the Tony Awards in June, Boyette and his investors would have to cough up an extra $2 million. While he was willing to chip in his share, the uncertainty of whether that investment would pay off 
made the gamble too steep for other investors. Despite Andrew Lloyd Webber's name attached to the show, The Woman in White failed to resonate with New York crowds. After that box office high during the winter holidays, ticket sales fell and never recovered. Even the media attention surrounding Friedman's cancer battle didn't translate to an uptick at the box office. I mean, Friedman was a star in London, but just couldn't pull the same draw in the Big Apple. Even during her various absences for treatment, the show didn't see a flood of refund requests, less than a dozen over three months. Same goes for her co-star, Michael Ball, another London sensation who didn't quite strike a chord with New Yorkers. Now, rumors swirled that Ball left the show due to feeling overshadowed, but Boyette dispelled those assumptions, saying that Ball is not a person you can neglect, and cited a genuine sinus problem as the reason why he left the show. Although Boyette jokingly added, quote, The only thing he ever said to me is, if Maria is out for more than two days, I want her dressing room. <laughs> I guess we can assume that was said in jest. Nonetheless, despite their hopes it would catch on, Lloyd Webber and Boyette acknowledge that it was an unexpected flop and that they'll be deconstructing this show forever. In fact, as Lloyd Webber was working with Zippel on Bad Cinderella, he offered his own thoughts on The Woman in White, and did so from that same chapel on his country estate where the musical began back in 2003. Well, anyway, it worked incredibly well here in the little church. In fact, um, I don't think it ever really worked anywhere better. Uh, it went to Broadway, went to London, uh, did okay in London, not so well, I'm afraid, didn't work on Broadway. It's an extraordinary thing that sometimes shows work really well in small spaces and when they kind of blow up, they don't work anything like so well, I think, just in this confined spaces. But that doesn't mean Lloyd Webber was completely done with the musical. Sometimes putting a little distance between ourselves and setbacks can bring perspective, especially when someone else can help provide us with a bit of incentive. In this case, it was the lyricist David Zippel who had an idea. I always thought that it was a chamber musical and that it, it was so closely associated or almost all the singing is done by six people. And so uh, I had pitched that to Andrew and he was working on a bunch of different projects. And when he finally came up for air, uh, he looked at what I was suggesting and Charlotte and he and I got back together and reimagined it a little bit, uh, and tightened the story a bit. And we did a, a pilot version of it in London a year ago this fall, this past fall. And that's the version now that goes out to other theaters. It'll have a life. In musical theater, as Lloyd Webber has said before, there are so many things that can go wrong. It is almost impossible to get them all to go right together. So while The Woman in White's original demise on Broadway may have been a disappointment, maybe with enough time and reimagining, they finally got all the pieces in the right order. I mean, as the Brits say, you simply keep calm and carry on. For a transcript and a full list of the numerous resources and materials used in this episode, you'll find a link to them in the show notes. Closing Night is a production of Win Me Media, I'm Patrick Oliver-Jones, host and executive producer. 
Dan Delgado is editor and producer, not only for this podcast, but also for his own movie podcast called The Industry. Theme music for Closing Night composed and created by Blake Stadnick. A special thank you to Leah Horowitz for her insights into the Broadway production of The Woman in White. Be sure to join me next time as another production makes its way to Closing Night. You can get away with anything as long as you don't bore. Steal a brimming bank account or steal a last encore. I've broken nine or ten commandments and skillfully escaped the blame. Yes, I can get away with anything because I have no No, 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 shame. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>